Welcome to Step Into the Story. Incredible conversations of how the Bible changes lives, changes families, and changes communities across the globe. And here's your host, Phil Tuttle of Walk Through the Bible. Welcome to Step Into the Story. Each time we get together, we have a conversation with someone about their life, how the Bible has changed everything for them. Um, we explore the intersection of God's story and your story. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. I'm excited about this new guest. It's someone I don't know much at all. Jana Harmon, welcome to Step Into the Story. Thanks, Phil, for having me. I'm excited to be on with you today. Uh, you know, Jana, um, your your bio is is quite intriguing to me. Uh, a teaching fellow. We need to do something about that fellow word. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what. Oh, it doesn't bother me. Um, <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. You're a teaching fellow for the C.S. Lewis Institute here in Atlanta. Adjunct professor of cultural apologetics at, at Biola. Um, a rich educational background culminated with a Ph.D. in religion and theology from the University of Birmingham in England. Um, so there, that's all the official part. But now let's let's get to know you as a, as a person. Um, just tell us a little bit about your growing up and your background. And, you know, were, were you in third grade going, you know, someday I want to be an associate professor, um, uh, adjunct professor of apologetics, cultural apologetics specifically. I mean, what is the path that God brought you on to have you doing what you're doing today, Jana? Well, that's a good question. You know, I, I I really do believe that the Lord has planned who who we are, what we do in advance, and that so many times we have no idea what His plans are. We're just along for the great adventure. And uh, where I am now is a very far distance from where I had seen myself growing up, and I was I was born into a conservative Christian family, a lovely Christian home, grew up in the 60s and 70s, and it was the time where where traditional values were esteemed, and so I really didn't see myself as much more than a housewife with kids. I never saw myself in the academic world or what I'm doing now. That was a a far cry from that, Um, but I, I grew up, went to college, and uh, I I will say, in terms of my journeying, spiritually speaking, I grew up in a, in, a, in a denomination that was a bit, I guess you could say, constrained, restricted, uh, legalistic. And so I didn't grow up with a real... I grew up with obedience to the Lord, but it, there was not a real love relationship with the Lord. And so... It really wasn't until my 30s where you talk about the Bible intersecting your life, where I actually was, the Lord graciously pulled me out of that denomination. When I learned all about Jesus and what he had done, I learned about grace. And that's when my life, spiritually, I would say, just started taking off. Wow. But again, it, it really had nothing to do with what I'm doing now. I was just enjoying learning to walk with the Lord and learning really at that time 
moving into a more comprehensive Bible study rather than proof texting, um, learning what it what the word was and learning the grand story and learning my place in it and, and the Lord's um, great plans for us and um, and my security in Him. So it it took me a while to kind of situate myself in that. Well, Jana, you and I have, um, I don't know the specific labels or anything on it, but we have a very similar background um, Mm -hmm. in terms of church upbringing. And um, I praise God for my parents who weren't really that strict or legalistic and and showed me, you know, plenty of, of grace at home. But um, offline, we'll have to compare notes sometimes because just by what you're saying and not saying, um, it's a familiar path that I'm very glad to not be walking any longer. Um, I'm big on grace and mercy. And um, I, I think it's so interesting to me um, what you're doing now. And, and again, I want to I want to talk about both of these topics, but um, tell us some about the C.S. Lewis Institute. I mean, it's it's here in Atlanta, but it exists in other cities as well. I just need to tell you that is something both my wife and and I uh, that's on our bucket list. I mean, the uh, Chronicles of Narnia deeply impacted me. I'll never forget um, reading the Screw Tape letters years ago, which C.S. Lewis wrote, and going. That's exactly the cheap stuff that Satan is pulling in my life. I get it now. And it made it easier to resist some of those things. And and mere Christianity just was mind-blowing for me when I read it in college. And um, I want to go back. I want to read all of those things as well as many of his other books. But um, before we talk about the Institute specifically, if— um, no doubt. I mean, we got a whole nother generation listening to this. Um, other than the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, I mean, why, why is it that C.S. Lewis stands the test of time and has so much to say um, to every generation? What do you think it is about him and his writings? That is a thought-provoking question. It seems to me, no matter where I turn, whether it's intellectual forums or just very casual forums or people or conversations, somehow C.S. Lewis's name comes up. He seems to be able to relate, obviously, to the, the child and, and through his imagination and his imaginative writings to the, to the most erudite adult, and because of his profound thinking and he was he was trained as a an extremely logical man who is who is vastly widely read um, so he is respected in all manner of thinking and of life and of living he has something to say he's and I, I I think when I when I think about C.S. Lewis is not only his his thought and his ability to to relate complex ideas in simple ways, but also the way that he seems to 
know the human condition very, mm, very well. Mm, that's gold and he's right able there. To relate, yeah, he's able to relate truths in a way that we know them, not only intellectually, but also experientially as well. And we go, yeah, that's so right, and that's so true. <laughs> that's incredibly profound. Yeah, and I mean, to be able to mix just that, that, undeniable logic that even if you want to disagree that's like you can't you can't question how he's getting to where he's getting but to be able to wrap that in a level of creativity and story that captures your imagination because you know it's a i mean i listen to a story differently than i listen to a sermon if it's a sermon i'm in evaluation mode right i'm i'm questioning things i'm looking for the gaps in logic and you tell me a story, especially if it's a personal story or there's some authenticity of emotion in it. I I drop my defenses and I open my heart in a new way. And he's just, I don't know. There's a there's a stunning amount of giftedness in one person there. So the C.S. Lewis is it's not a a school where one enrolls and you know, it's what exactly is it and um, how is it accessible to those of us who are listening to our conversation today? I'm so glad you asked. We all esteem and love the writings of C.S. Lewis. But I think there's oftentimes a a thinking that the C.S. Lewis Institute is all about the writings of C.S. Lewis and and really looking at those more closely. Now, that is a part of it, but the primary goal of the C.S. Lewis Institute is actually to develop disciples like, or as in the legacy of C.S. Lewis, someone who, by his own example, not only embraced the Lord with his mind, uh, but also with his heart and his life. And so the C.S. Lewis Institute seeks to make disciples who are more fully orbed in their understanding of their walk, mind, heart, and hands. Mm. So their keystone offering really is a, a discipleship program, whereby if someone was interested in really taking their faith to a deeper place, they would sign up for the Fellows Program. It's a year-long discipling program where each month you read a particular curriculum of thoughtful writers, both contemporary and past, over a certain topic. And then you come together, and there's a, a group teaching, and then there's a small group discussion over what you've been reading. And you know, so there's there's also a mentor who is a graduate fellow who walks alongside of you as you're encountering these ideas and really trying to process them through your own life your own thinking and your own living. So it really is, it, it's a nice adjunct to any kind of discipling program that the church offers. It's meant to to really be a service to the church, as it were. Hmm. Yeah, and we'll put the, we'll put a link where people can find out more about that in our, in our show notes. Um, but I just, I mean, I'm serious, Janet, that is, uh, my travel schedule has not made it possible up to this point because when we do it, we want to do it right. But that's definitely yeah. something that Ellen and I are, uh, maybe we'll run into you there. Uh, 
The other part that just jumped out at me as I was, um, you can call it research or say I was creeping on your life, uh, either, either one. But the, <laughs> the other thing that just jumped off the page was I don't know very many people where their doctoral research, um, yours at the University of Birmingham in England, and, and dissertation, you know, for so many men and women, that ends up being something that lives on a shelf in a library someplace, um, lots of times not super practical. I, d I really don't mean that as critically as it's coming off, but that's just the reality of really higher education research. Yours, by contrast, has opened up an amazing ministry for you. Um, let's let's talk some about your original research and um, what it was that you studied, and then we'll we'll talk about how God's using that now. But tell us about that original research, where you got the idea from it, why you were passionate about it, and how some of that unfolded. To give you a little bit of context for where this came from, my husband and I, as we were leading small groups in our church, we began to lead seeker-oriented groups. And it was very, it became very quickly, very plain to me that I did not have very good answers to give those who had come in from outside of the Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. And so that set me off on a journey of wanting to know why I believed what I believed and how the Christian worldview held up against other worldviews, including naturalism or the atheistic worldview. And when I came through my graduate work in apologetics, I then observed the intellectual argument between those who who were between Christianity and the Christian worldview, which I, I was convinced, very well convinced, that it had the best answers for what reality is, who we are in our humanity, all of those things that, that, that it was, had a very strong and compelling case, especially against naturalism or the atheistic worldview that I watched for about 10 years, where it seemed like no matter what evidence or arguments were presented from the Christian worldview, that it seemed to fall flat or unconvincing to the atheists. And I thought, you know, I was reading Francis Schaeffer and Blaise Pascal about and appreciating the fact that there's more to us as human beings than just our intellect, that there are other things going on. Perhaps there's our heart, our passions, the things that we like and things that we want and, and uh, other experiences in our lives that might prevent us from desiring God, or even if it is true, or even if Christianity is true or God is real. So I wanted to take a more holistic look, really, at, generally speaking, why we hold beliefs. You know, is it just rational? Or I'm talking about growing up, I grew up in a family that was a conservative Christian family. You know, there are those social issues, there are cultural issue, issues going on, why we are why we have the beliefs that we do. So particularly, I wanted to know if, for the atheists, what informs their non-belief? And what would it take if, if the truth is really on the side of the Christian worldview? What would it take for an atheist to become a Christian 
not only what would it take, but what did it take? And so through my uh, PhD work, I, I interviewed over 50 former atheists to hear their stories of how they moved from a very resistant form of non-belief to coming to become very avid and strong believers in Christ, some of the most incredibly on-fire followers of Christ that I know. And it was a, it was very eye-opening, very inspiring, very enlightening to see the ways and means that the Lord uses to bring someone so far away, so seemingly unreachable to himself. Mm. And now you fast forward that to today and, uh, You've got the Side B podcast. I love the tagline, how people flip the record of their lives. Um, my kids would probably look at that and go, what's the other side of the record? I don't get that. But um, I, would ex- <laughs> I would explain it to them, and just like I had to teach them what the hands on the clock really meant, you know, that it's not always digital. Right, of course. But, um, yeah. you know, you ha- your podcast, and this this intrigues me. I've listened to a few of them. Um just really authentic conversations with men and women who were, I mean, not just how did they come to trust Christ as Savior, but they were atheists. They were convinced that there is no God. And um, the story, and while each one is is individual, um, I'm wondering, between your research back then, but also the, the Side B podcast, are there are there commonalities of what brings a person from darkness to light, um, especially somebody who's just dead set against belief. What are the, what are the common patterns that that change seems to follow if there are some? That's a great question. As you know, we all come to believe in different ways. Um, and we all resist, or those who are resisting God, resist for different reasons. And so sometimes the reasons why you resist may be connected to what might open the door. So what I mean by that is that, that there are those who actually resist God. Say, for example, someone had a really abusive childhood or a tragic event happened in their life, and they, they, they wonder where was God, you know. So they're, they're feeling as if, you know, God wasn't there, that God doesn't care, and may even become extremely angry about that. Like the very first podcast, Mike Arnold tells a story of how his house burned when he was seven years old. You know, he believed at seven that Jesus loved him. And then his house burns, and he loses two of his brothers. And he said he became a, a strong atheist after that at age seven. He said, I wouldn't even step foot into a, a church for a wedding or a funeral. And that lasted for 20 years because he was so angry at God for that. So if you think about that in terms of what informs the atheist, and that's why it's so important for us to know someone's story and not just try to present something to them when we don't even know who they are. So, but it's interesting, okay, you think about the fact that he perceives God as not good. 
So what would break down that barrier? Well, he ended up meeting Christians. His wife became a Christian. It angered him, so he went over to their home and of the, of the folks who had actually brought his wife to Christ, and he found he, he was incredibly dishonest because he found these warm, loving people who sat down with him over a cup of coffee. He didn't know what to expect. He went in for a fight, a battle. Instead, he found him, who was at by this time a very angry, unlovable man. He found a couple who was who wanted to sit down with him and love on him and listen to him. And as he said in his interview, they treated me like I was a human. Well, wow. that's just love. You know, there was something that started barely breaking down the barrier, but this went on for. He found something attractive, right? There was something good there that he didn't think was possible. And these religious people represented God to him. So they invested days and months and weeks into this thing. And he would argue and he would, you know, do everything he could to resist God until finally, you know, it came to a point where um, this couple had lost on him, had given him all the answers that he was looking for, and finally they said, what are you holding against God? And he had no more answers, hmm. because they had poured out love on him, yeah. and he ended up accepting Christ. So, But yet, you know, that's one person's story. So, But you can see, I have seen a pattern of those who have dismissed God because he was absent or are the, you know, he didn't care, and and then they found that, well, perhaps maybe he does, and that was through people who represented God who mm. came. So well, that, that's just one one pattern, I guess you could say. Yeah, for sure. That, that, as well. that aligns with the ones I listen to also. You know, a lot of times people will define apologetics as, well, that's when you essentially paint people into a corner with logic and they have no choice but to throw up the white flag of surrender and say, your beliefs are better than my beliefs. And um, I don't know many people who have met the Savior um, by being, you know, just overcome with the logic. Certainly our faith is reasonable and there's a solid foundation of thought but there's almost always that relational component of somebody who represents Christ well, um, you know. And I, I was just at a at a Bible conference speaking, and the other speaker there talked a lot about how much of evangelism is actually becoming a good listener. And um, Jana, I just want to affirm in you. Listening to how you interact with guests, you are a tremendous listener who the next thing out of your mouth after somebody else talks is not just the answer that you've prepared that's going to counter what they say. You genuinely listen, and it's I'm 0% surprised that God has chosen to use you in the way that he's using you. You just... You just need to hear me say that as somebody who doesn't know you. We've never even met face-to-face, but that is the hallmark of your ministry, and I hope you're encouraged to hear me say that. Wow. 
that really is encouraging. I, you know, it's funny how the Lord makes us all very unique, and and I am an introvert by nature. It has been my 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 natural posture to to speak little and to listen much. A lot of that out of perhaps shyness or insecurity. And so I have, I've learned over these many years to actually become a good listener. And it, I, it, it's something, again, kind of natural to me, but I do see it as a gift um, that the Lord has also blessed and, and enables me to, I, I guess, enter into others' stories. Mm, mm. You know, we'll, we'll definitely um, put a link so that the folks who are listening to this can experience the side B podcast for themselves for themselves. But I, I want to ask you, I mean, I think almost all of us have somebody in our, in our life who we've said, Oh, that person is probably unreachable. Maybe we've tried before, maybe last Thanksgiving dinner ended up in a big argument. And, and it's like, I'm never bringing up that topic again with them. And, you know, we, we can brand people with a new scarlet A, the, the, the label of atheist, like that's a permanent situation that, well, maybe if God appeared like he did on the Damascus Road or if he wrote it on the wall of their house, maybe he would break through. But I'm not going to be part of that process because that person's just, they know more than I do. They just scare me. Um, what would you say to just encourage the average person like me that are listening to this today from, from the stories that you've heard, and you've heard a bunch of them now, if you could give some advice to those of us that have somebody in our world, might be a coworker, uh, a neighbor, um, worst of all, when it's a relative, um, what could you say to help the average person um, do things that would be compelling and make the gospel attractive through our living and our conversation. What what would you say? In my experience, what I have come to appreciate really is, first of all, you need to, to remain in someone's life. You don't, just because they may believe in a different way or in an off-putting way, perhaps they hate the way that you believe and you think it's ridiculous. What you need to do is remain in a way that the Lord remains with us. Remain in a way that is an embodied form of Christianity that that is authentic, that is it matches what you say you believe. It's generous, it's hospitable, it's loving, it's kind. It's all of those things that, that they that they cannot provide an argument against. It's, it's providing a, an embodied picture of a meaningful, contented life. It's something you don't know where someone else may be struggling with, with a lack of contentment or satisfaction. They may even be having doubts about their own worldview. So in one way, you need to remain and be embodied Christ in their life. No matter what they say, no matter what they do, 
not and and the other thing I would say is is you need to really actually that, well let me just say this there are negative stereotypes that atheists and non-believers and skeptics hold of Christians one of them is that they're not good and that's what I in terms of being embodied Christ that's how you break down those stereotypes and and surprise them and build plausibility of, oh, you're actually normal. Oh, you, you're actually kind. Oh, you actually are loving. You're not as hateful as I thought you were. So you're, you're, you're living out, breaking down those negative stereotypes and building up personal plausibility. The other thing is, is that there's oftentimes the negative caricaturizing of Christians as being stupid or ill-informed. Right. And that's on us. We need to actually do due diligence to understand not only our own Christian worldview, why we believe what we believe, um, but we also need to understand uh, their worldview as well. When you understand your own worldview, the Christian worldview, it gives you such calm confidence so that you don't have to be defensive. You don't have to rise to anger and just shout out, you know, mantras and slogans like they do to us. There, there's a, a way in which we can engage in meaningful conversation in a very, again, a calm and confident, quiet, confident way by asking questions and just engaging, helping people to see that perhaps what they believe in isn't all what they cracked up, it's all cracked up to be. You know, the, the it's not only, you know, in, in the traditional apologetics world, you know, that we have answers for what we see outside of ourselves in the universe, you know, that we, we have incredible arguments for the existence of God or the origin of the universe and the cosmos and tuning and looking at the cell and the information and all of that all that kind of philosophical argument. But we also have the best explanation for who we are in our own humanity. And I think oftentimes we miss that as Christians, that the Christian worldview is the only one that gives us dignity as humans, that, that gives us consciousness and free will. It's the only worldview that actually explains that there's a reality to love. And all of those things that make us human and valuable the only thing that actually can say, wow, that's really right, because that's really wrong. Christianity is the only worldview that can offer that that makes us make sense, sense of our own world. Mm. So we have a lot, um, and it's just a matter of understanding who we are and acting like that, <laughs> and also understanding why we believe what we believe and being able to engage in a meaningful non-defensive way, asking questions, and, uh, and mm. really just staying the course. Yeah. You, you, I was, I was uh, really looking at, I've been looking at again, what is it that opens the door? You know, that's that million-dollar question. And, and if I had to sum it up, I was just looking at this today, I would say, you know, there's something that, that disrupts their, their world or their understanding, whether it's um, someone who comes into their world that is not, it surprises them, it disarms them in terms of 
live with this, what I would call a disruptive longing. That is, that they want something more that the, than their world or worldview is offering them. Obviously, we see such devastation in culture these days, so much substance abuse and depression and anxiety and all of these things because their world or their life, their internal sense of being is it's not what they want or they're looking for something more. And sometimes that kind of thing, someone will actually look at their own worldview and say, well, does my own worldview even offer what I'm looking for? Mm-hmm. They have a kind of distance about that, an emotional existential dissonance that their life isn't what they're really, really wanting and they become open to something else. Sometimes it really is a disruptive event or crisis in their lives and change, circumstances change and people become open. That's why it's important to kind of be in the sidelines and being engaged in the life so that when those moments happen and when people are so apathetic or against God, but then you're there when those things do happen, when they are ready, that, that you're there in their life, giving them an embodied picture of what life could look like. You know, Jana, that all sounds a lot like how Jesus himself interacted with people. You know, so, so winsome, so genuinely concerned uh, for them. Not if you'll just get your act together, you'll be welcome in my presence. You know, whether it was calling Zacchaeus down from the tree and going to his house or um, kneeling down with the woman who was about to be stoned and riding in the ground or engaging the woman at the well um, and not leading with with her um, immoral reputation, but bringing the offer of living water to her. And, you know, I just, I just, again, thank you so much for the hard work that you've done with the research, but also for opening that up in a non-academic way through your podcasts um, to, to just show us that sometimes it's, it is just staying in somebody's life, even when they reject what we believe or even want to reject us. But, but just saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm in it, regardless of if you ever embrace my views or not. And by the way, the same things that keep you up awake at night sometimes keep me up awake at night and just being real about it. So thank you so much for for sharing and uh, you know this is what we want to do every time we get together on step into the story is is find out find out how god is building he's writing the next chapter of his story in our story and and jana you've just communicated that so well for us i think i think what you've shared is going to help a lot of people and uh, thank you for for being my guest today and Look forward to the next time that we get together for another conversation. If there's any way that we can serve you at Walk Through the Bible, check out the resources that are there at walkthrough.org. And tell your friends about Step Into the Story, um, especially those who may be trying to figure out um, how to build relationships to share their faith in an authentic way with others. Jana, thank you so much um, for being my guest today on Step Into the Story. It's been a real pleasure, Phil. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for the Step Into the Story podcast, powered by Walk Through the Bible. 
We'd love to hear what you think by giving us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Also, don't miss a single episode by clicking the subscribe button. If you'd like more resources to help you explore and live God's word in your daily life, visit walkthrough.org. That's W-A-L-K-T-H-R-U dot O-R-G. Walk through the Bible. Take a walk. Change the world.